Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sothenes. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace be to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given to you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech, with all knowledge, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly await for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end, so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. That's how Charles Dickens opens the book, The Tale of Two Cities. And it strikes me that that's often uh, the best way to answer a question from a friend that I haven't seen in a while. So, so Johnny, how's life going for you? That's the best of times and it's the worst of times. Or, Or maybe this question. So, Johnny, how are things going at the gate, church? And I think of of this quote. Church life, much like life in general, often feels like both the best and the worst of times at the same time. Things seem to be going great and at the same time, terrible. Many encouragements and also many challenges. You know, in church, we see people come into faith. You see church growing and new people in church. You see people changing. And situations changing in favorable ways and and people having victory over long-term struggles. Things that once used to just totally ruin their life, they're now free from. And they're all evidences of God's grace in the church. But then you also look around and you see relational breakdown. see little pockets of disunity in the church. You see battles with sin that too often are being lost as Christian lives are compromised. See confusion and great doubt over truth. Church life can be really, really messy. And that's because people's lives are really, really messy. Sometimes if you're newer to church, um, people often don't don't see this at kind of first look. From a quick look on the surface, it can seem like everyone else has got it all together and everyone else is fine and they've got no problems and no issues. But when people come to realize that church is messy because it's full of messy people like you and like me, that doesn't put people off. They're actually really reassured. Oh, okay. That means other people struggle in similar ways to me too. Maybe I'll fit in here after all. We haven't even mentioned the challenges in the wider culture around us. Here we are in the heart of this busy and bustling and diverse modern city. Over a million people live around us from all over the world in all kinds of backgrounds. And they're living for all kinds of different things as the functional God of their lives. And for most people, Jesus does not seem relevant whatsoever. And church is something that they just could not be 
less interested in. Just does not register for them. It's quite a challenging context for a small and relatively young local church to exist in. Now listen, God's people have been in a similar place to this and had a similar experience to this before. And the place is the city of Corinth in southern Greece in the first century, nearly 2,000 years ago. There's remarkable similarities between what was going on in Corinth in the first century and 2024 in Birmingham. And we'll see that as we go through this series. Over the next six months, we're going to be working through this letter, 1 Corinthians, that the the Apostle Paul sent to this church in this city of Corinth. Uh, It's a church that he had helped uh, get going around 50 AD when he visited Corinth for 18 months as part of his traveling ministry. And a few years later, he's heard that things are not going so well in Corinth. And he's actually received some kind of letter or correspondence from them with a whole series of questions of things that they're confused by and they're not sure about. And so this letter of 1 Corinthians is him writing to them and, and um, replying to them. And it's packed full of pastoral wisdom and instruction on how they can navigate the challenges that they are facing and encouraging them to stick at the faith and to stay the course as a church together. Now, now what we're going to see in this letter of 1 Corinthians is, is the high calling of and for the church. And along with that, it will bring us great hope. Because although Christians at Corinth, and therefore the church at Corinth, was a right mess, God loved them. And his grace was sufficient. And I tell you, we're going to be able to relate to that so, so well. God loved them and his grace was sufficient. Now, what we need to do today is we need to find our bearings a little bit. We need to get to know Paul and Corinth and, and some of that stuff. But, but we're not just doing that. As usual, as Paul starts one of his letters, it's like a trailer for what's going to unfold in the rest of the letter. So today's like a trailer for the rest of this next six months. And Paul always just soups up and jam-packs his openings full with spiritual dynamite that is just so alive and powerful. And so today I hope that we're encouraged in the midst of the messiness of of our lives, and in the midst of the messiness of church, that we are encouraged with the conviction of our identity as God's people. And we are confident that God will complete his work in us to the end. Now, we're going to see that in in these three things that we see in this little opening God has called his people into. And the first one is this, we are called to be his holy people. Now, the letter opens according to the customs of the day. This is how you wrote letters back then. The person who's writing it gives them, uh, introduces themselves. Um, you, you also say who you're sending it to. We tend to put who sent it at the end, don't we? But they do it at the beginning. Uh, and there's often a greeting and an expression of thanks. So, so before we come to us, we see Paul is the one who's writing the letter. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And he's writing it with Sosthenes, who's basically a secretary or a scribe. Paul would have been dictating it out and Sosthenes writing the words. And what Paul wants the readers to know, the top thing that he wants them to know about himself is that he is called. He is called. Don't you ever had that slightly awkward experience on, 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 a, on the phone where someone calls you and you say hi and they say hello and then they wait for you to start the conversation. And it's just like, it's, it's just awkward, right? I mean, if, do it to your mates. It's quite, it's quite funny. But, but when you call someone, you have a purpose in that. You're the one taking initiative. And so you need to start the conversation. You've got something to say, right? 
And so this idea of calling has a sense here of authority. And so when Paul says he is called by God's will to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, it means it's God's intention. God has called Paul. It's God's initiative that Paul will represent Christ. And so Paul carries out this role as an apostle, not on his own authority, but on God's authority. And Paul answers to Jesus in how he does this, because God has called him. Now, this is significant. We'll see as we go through the letter. A letter where Paul has to mount something of a defense of his apostolic authority and his ministry uh, that is being questioned in Corinth. When he says, look, I'm called as an apostle of Christ Jesus. And who is he writing to? What does he understand of of, of them? Verse 2, to the church of God in Corinth. Now, this is this twin idea. You've got um, the idea of being part of the church in this universal sense all across the world and down through history. But it's the church of God in Corinth in a particular time, in a particular place, and amongst a particular people. No, no, it is God's church. God has the naming rights to the church. No leader, no interest group, no one else but God. You know, having founded the church at Corinth, Paul, of all people, could have probably claimed the rights to it. But Paul knows of the dangers of a celebrity culture. He knows of the dangers of a strong and charismatic leaders who will make themselves too central. And we'll see as we go through the series in a church that is splitting into factions over who their favorite leaders are and who who the man is for them. Paul reminds them, though, this is God's church. It's not Paul's church. It's not Apollos' church. It's not Johnny Richards' church or Toby Giles or Johnny Ivey's or any other leader or personality. No, this is God's church. I heard, I heard of an argument that I, th- I think some of you might have heard of as well. A popular and very successful leader of one of the fastest growing megachurches in recent years. He was arguing with one of his staff team about something to do with an approach to ministry. And in the midst of the argument, he angrily burst out, Do you know whose church this is? To which, of course, the answer was, yeah, it's Jesus' church. But in his mind, it was his church. And so he called the shots. It was all about and for him. But it never was. And so it was snatched out of his hand, even as he grasped after it by the Lord Almighty, who will not share his glory and will not share what is rightfully his with another. The gate church is God's church. It is never ours. And so we are his. We don't belong to anyone else. So it is God's church, but it is God's church in Corinth and in the first century. Let me give you a couple of quotes to help us understand a little bit of what Corinth was like back then. A mass of Jews, ex-soldiers, philosophers, merchants, sailors, freedmen, slaves, tradespeople, hucksters, and agents of every form of vice. And this one, I think, just brings it really home of how relatable it is for us. The ideal of the Corinthian, the Corinthian person, was the reckless development of the individual, the merchant who made his game by all and every means, the man of pleasure, surrendering himself to every lust, the athlete steeled to every bodily exercise and proud in his physical strength. These are the true Corinthian types. In a word, the man who recognized no superior and no law but his own desires. I mean, you could say this is the true Brummie, couldn't you? 
in 2024. They're big into money. They're all about the individual making a name for themselves and making their mark in the world. They're about the endless pursuit of pleasure. There is great pride in their physical strength and their physical appearance. They're in the gym every day getting ripped. They're driven by desire. It's all too familiar for us, right? This is, this is bang at where we're at. And that is what some of them in the church at Corinth were. It is from these people. It is these types of people that God has gathered. He has called out and gathered into this church. And he set them apart to be a distinct people. See, that's what, what it means in verse 2. Where Paul says, they are those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. Sanctification is this big kind of old Christian word. It simply means to be made holy. So you could helpfully rephrase this. You are those who have been made holy. That's this remarkable identity that's been given and you are called to be holy. That's a high calling placed on their lives. This is a shared identity. It's not about an individual Christian. It's about the church together, a a corporate shared reality that is personal but also corporate. Now, to be holy is to be like God in our character. And in that, to be distinctive and to stand out in some way. And what we see here is that holiness is something that God does for us before he does it in us. You've been made holy to be holy. That is their sole purpose and what they live for. It's a bit of a silly illustration and some of you would have heard this before for me but but it makes the point think of a, a toilet brush which is set aside for only one thing and one thing only to clean the toilet a toilet brush is not a multi-purpose kind of brush okay you don't use it for your teeth or your hair I really hope you don't <laughs> the toilet brush is sanctified It is an all-about-one-thing type of brush. It's got one job and one job only. And so too, the Christians at Corinth, they're all about one thing. They are set apart. They're set aside for one thing. They're set aside from the city around them to be those who, who, who become exactly like Jesus in character, who become holy. And so as they do that, as they're set aside by God for that purpose, they become distinctive in the city around them. Now, you might expect this, and this criticism is often leveled at Christians at the church. Well, you're going to get this group of people who are self-righteous and, and holier than now and so up themselves because they're, they're so good and they look down on everyone around them. But listen, this should never, ever happen in the church. And when it does, it means that Christians really haven't got hold of, of the right thing at all because holiness is firstly a gift that is given to us by God before it is then his work in us and through us. So it is never really of us, but it is of him. God's setting apart a people distinct for himself, for his purposes, for his glory, and to be a witness to a watching world. Now listen, this is a totally remarkable way for Paul to describe this church in Corinth, as indeed it would be to describe us today. What we know of the church at Corinth, and what we're going to see through this letter, is the Corinthian culture of the city was still very much within the church. Church was full of crass individualism, people promoting themselves and and trying to get a hearing. It was full of egos and factions. There was chaos in their public worship. 
people were getting drunk regularly during communion. They were literally getting lashed during communion, whilst others were going hungry and thirsty. They were suing each other, taking one another to court. There was sexual immorality within the church, including incest and prostitution, and everyone was just turning a blind eye, saying, that's fine, that doesn't matter. The church was a right mess. That is not holy living. It's not distinctive. And if we came across a church like that, we'd perhaps rightly disassociate ourselves with that church and and throw them to the curb. And what does Paul do? He says, they are made holy in Christ Jesus, and they are called to be his holy people. Listen, the sin of the Christian, which is very real, the sin of the Christian never disproves the gospel. It never disproves the gospel, but rather it proves again our need of the gospel. If anything, it proves it to be true. It was never about us and our goodness. It was always about God's grace and God's goodness to save. Now, before we we move on to to the second thing we want us to see, just know in verse 2, what Paul says, he says, this identity is these holy people set apart and called to be holy. It isn't just for those in the church of Corinth, but it's, it's shared with those everywhere who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. All across the world at that time and all the way down through history and across the world today, the people of God in the church are the people who are set apart as distinct, the holy people. And so this includes us at the Gate Church. Made holy called to be God's holy people, just like him in character, a shining light that is distinct in the world around, standing out in the darkness. This is who we are, and it's who we're called to be. And so as we read this letter, we read it too, receiving the grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we are called to be a holy people. And secondly, we are called into the grace of God. Given how, how messy life often is, and, and including in, in church, I, I wonder whether at the start of a new year, we might be prone to some kind of spiritual insecurity. Perhaps it's not so much new year, new me, but new year, new doubts, and new insecurities, and, and new worries and concerns as I look ahead to the year. You know, maybe, maybe some at Corinth at this time, uh, given how much of a mess it was in the church, were starting to think, well, guys, surely we're getting this wrong. Maybe God's not at work amongst us after all. Like, what's, what's going on here? But as Paul writes to them, he is confident of God's work in them. And so he has a, a thankful heart as he starts this letter. Now, the church is in such a state, as we've already seen, that, that some think, they read this and they think, well, surely this thankfulness is, is just um, is, is kind of ironic or sarcastic or, or just Paul being, being a bit, you know, just taking the mick or something because there's so little to be thankful for in this church. It's such a mess. And I do wonder if Paul was tempted to just skip over the usual thanksgiving here and, you know, either just write a really long and angry rant or or if he was self-controlled, maybe just a really short letter. Dear Corinthians, will you please stop it? Lovingly, Paul. (laughs) You know, just cut to the chase. But no, Paul starts with this genuine 
thanksgiving. And what follows is 16 chapters of careful and pastoral wisdom and love and warmth and hope for this church, which he just cares so deeply for. He clearly has much affection for. It's a helpful model for us. It's a helpful model for you. In the midst of conflict, do you seek to turn to thanksgiving? It's an underappreciated spiritual discipline. I remember I was in one particularly difficult interpersonal conflict situation and was sitting down with some people at the start of a meeting to talk about some of the issues in the relationship and, and that's what we were going to talk to and, and I just needed to take some time at the beginning of that meeting to express some ways that I was thankful for them. Some things I respected and appreciated and thankful to God for. And that was vital to just change the tone of the discussion. It was key for my heart to stay balanced and humble. You know, our close friendships, particularly our marriages, will be greatly helped, I think, if we intentionally, in the midst of conflict, stopped and thought, what am I thankful for? What can I say I appreciate? What can I encourage this person in? Not as a means of avoiding conflict, but even as you step into it. I think that would help us navigate these things better. You see, because when God's involved, there is always, there is always something to be thankful for. And so verse 4, Paul is thankful to God for his grace that is given to them and, and, and his grace that is at work in them. Now, I know it doesn't say in the text here that, as, as I've called it on the screen, called into this grace. But I think it's a helpful way to express it. God giving us his grace is him calling us as Christians into this wonderful new reality where our life is defined and is shaped by him not only withholding the judgment that we do deserve, but pouring into us the blessings and the goodness and the kindness of God and the fullness of God that we don't deserve. That's what grace is. And, and, and so it's this, it's this new reality that we're called into. And God's grace is a gift. It's not something we earn or something we achieve. And so Paul says, I thank God for his grace given to you because it comes from God. Now, Paul sees this grace uh, expressed and worked out in their lives in, in, in three ways. And it's kind of a past and a present and a future grace. In, in verse 5, first of all, he says that they have been enriched in every way. In particular, with these speech and knowledge gifts that had become a big deal in, in the church in Corinth, as we will see. And, and these things are gifts from God. Nothing more than gifts from God, but also nothing less than gifts from God. And they are enriched in this. And to be enriched is to be filled up with something that you don't already have, to be improved and enhanced. Not only are they enriched with every spiritual blessing in Christ, but also these gifts, which Paul says are an evidence and a confirmation that Christ is at work among them. So that's the past reality. Verse 7. So they do not lack any spiritual gift as eagerly they await the Lord Jesus Christ, to be revealed. And so this, secondly, is the present tense experience of that past uh, tense reality of being enriched in every way. In the present moment, by God's grace, in Christ, they, they and we have it all. There is nothing that we need as Christians that he has not given to us. It seems like in Corinth, some, some in the church were trying to reach out for something more in their spiritual life. They were looking either to great leaders or being impressive in their own gifting. Uh, and they seem to get all this spiritual insecurity and, and it becomes too much about them because they kind of feel like they haven't got everything they need. 
but they have it in Christ already, all of it. So they don't need to prove themselves or look for more spiritually. They and we can rest easy in him and his grace in this moment. And thirdly, in verse 8, there's also a confidence that Paul has in God's future grace yet to be given. He will also keep us firm to the end, Paul writes, so that we are blameless on the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. God's grace that's shown to us in the past, that we experience and rest in right now, makes us confident of his future grace that will keep us right until the end. We have all we need in Jesus to stay firm, stand firm, and be blameless to the end. So we've been uh, both fully endowed with gifts of God's grace and will be completely sustained by the faithfulness of God. And so Paul is thankful, even in the mess. And he is confident about their future, despite how messy it is. Not because of them, not because of how impressive they are, but because of the goodness and the faithfulness of God. And that's where this opening culminates. Thirdly, in verse 9, we are called into fellowship with God, the God who is faithful. Another slightly old-fashioned churchy word, fellowship. But it basically means just being bezies with someone. It's being joined together in a close relationship and a partnership. And that is what the church at Corinth, and that is what we have with God, Paul says. We are called, that means we're invited, we're even summoned by God into this direct and this close relationship with the true and living God who is real. You see, God doesn't just call us to be like him, but he calls us to be with him. When we answer the call of God on our lives, he doesn't firstly or primarily give us a list of things he wants us to do. He doesn't come and give us all the ways that he wants us to change. But he's just calling for a chat. He's just calling to say, we just come over and hang out and spend some time with me. Let's be friends. Let's enjoy one another's company. Let me be your gods and let you be my people. How refreshing that is for our souls. In the mess and in the complexity of life in this modern world. In a fragile church situation. What a delight to know that we have been called, we have been invited and summoned into fellowship with God. Just come and spend some time with me. Let's be friends. And here's, here's where I want to finish. It's just possible that we might gloss over and so miss something that's absolutely integral to this, this little text and this letter. You see, we could be inspired by what we've heard, but it could all feel a little bit impossible and, and overwhelming as we capture something of this high calling of the church to be holy and to be stink, dis, distinct and, uh, and to be gifted in every way and to stand firm and be blameless to the end. And that could overwhelm us because it is impossible for us. But listen, it isn't down to us, but it is all of Christ. I skimmed over something that is so glaringly obvious and so ridiculously spectacular as we've gone through that I just want to 
draw maximum attention to this as we close. So this is the thing that we remember and we take with us. Did you know how many times Jesus' name was dropped in this short opening of nine verses? Well, it's nine times. And there's several other direct references to him uh, being in him or Lord or whatever. There's multiple other references. This is totally Jesus-centered. It just pours out of Paul's heart and runs from his pen. And, and the goodness of Jesus just jumps off the page at us. In Christ Jesus, we are sanctified. And we are called to be his holy people. It is God's grace that is given to us in Christ Jesus. It is in him that we are enriched in every way. It is him that we wait for. It is him who keeps us firm to the end. So we are blameless when he returns. It is the fellowship with Jesus, the Son of God, that we are called into. All of this, all of it comes to us and is ours in and through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so to be more on point and to get the points right, we need to add in Jesus to the end of each one. We're called to be as holy people in Jesus. We're called into the grace of God in Jesus. We're called into fellowship with God in Jesus. If we don't get this point, if we don't get that it is all about Jesus and it is all to a totally undeserved gift to us from him, then we'll just end up with a hollow and a fake and, and a powerless religion. That's all we'll become. Well, we've got to perform. Well, we've got to try and make ourselves good. Well, we have no peace whatsoever, but we're totally insecure. Where no grace is given, but demands are made upon us. Where we're in competition with one another, and we fracture and fall apart and split off into groups. And we'll be left unsatisfied and overwhelmed and burnt out and lonely. Let's not be like that. This letter reminds us that it is in and through Christ. That it is who he is and what he's done for us that we truly have it all. And you know what? The Christian life is just freely and gladly opening up your hands, opening up your heart, and just saying yes and just receiving and taking him. Amidst all the mess of life as we know it and as we experience it, and through him receiving all the goodness and the benefits of God. And so through him, that is why we can be confident of our future, because despite all the mess, his grace is sufficient for us, and it will be to the end. Let's pray. Lord, it's just incredible to think in... in, in a few sentences, just kind of opening a letter with some greetings. What power and what revolutionary ideas and concepts there are. What revolutionary truths and realities. Lord, we're sorry when we make it all about us. We put ourselves at the center. When we, when we think it, it relies on us or depends on us. Lord, what a, what a hopeless way to live. Thank you, Jesus, that it, it all relies on you. Thanking that you have done it. And for any of us who will come to you with open hands and an open heart, we can receive all of the life that you have to give to us and offer to us. We can receive moral renewal and, and perfection. We can receive 
grace. We can receive new relationship with you. We can receive life forevermore. Help us to live in it and to enjoy it and help us to point to you as the great one who gives it to us. We pray for your glory. Amen.